You're tuned to Once Upon a Fairy Tale. Hey, Anthony. Thank you for joining us on Once Upon a Fairy Tale, the podcast. Anthony Drew is the lyricist of the stage adaptation of Disney's Mary Poppins. George Stiles is the composer and uh, partner in crime. So, congratulations, first of all, Anthony.、Uh, Mary Poppins seems to be very successful. There's a lot of hype even today. And a couple days ago, ABC broadcast the movie. On for the first time on a network in 13 years. And this special was hosted by Dick Van Dyke, who also just recently celebrated his birthday.、Uh, Julie's was not too long ago in October. And I know this because the fans are constantly tweeting about it, and it just goes to show how loved Mary Poppins still is. Did you happen to catch this TV special? I didn't. I didn't see this most recent TV special, but I did send Julie Andrews an email to wish her a happy 80th birthday. And it was. Yesterday or the day before, it was Dick Van Dyke's 90th, 90th birthday.、Yeah. And I know they did like a flash mob of chimney sweeps. They found him somewhere in Los Angeles, I think. And there was a、oh, flash、wow. mob of people dressed as Victorian chimney sweeps singing Chim Chimery. On the streets? On the streets, yeah. Oh, how fantastic. And then there was also a recent performance of Practically Perfect, which is one of the new songs that you wrote.、Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was performed at the Royal Variety Performance? Yeah, the Royal for- Variety Show in, in,、um, in London. Right. It was actually the very first song that we wrote. Mary Poppins, and we wrote it in January 1994. And we had to wait until 2004 before、That's... the show came on stage. So it was 10 years before、oh、the show came to f r u i t i o n But it was in January 1994 that we were first approached, and we wrote Practically Perfect as a pitch to try and get the job. And other than changing one couplet in it, it stayed exactly the same you know, in every production ever since. And so we were very touched when. A, they announced that they were going to do it at the Royal Variety Show, but B, that they were going to do a song by us. But it was terrifying for Zizi Stralin because I don't know if you've ever been to the Albert Hall, but it's enormous. It seats 5,000. She flew from the back of the balcony to the stage. So she、mm-hmm. effectively jumped into a void and then had to fly the whole way down to the stage. Okay, Ordinarily, gonna... she flies out of the theatre from the stage to the back of the theatre. Yes, I was surprised. I was like, why is she coming in from the audience? Yeah, they just wanted、new. to make some spectacular appearance for her. Okay, so that was a special thing only、mm-hmm. for that performance. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Do you know, I haven't actually seen it yet. You haven't? I was There are videos、London. on YouTube. I know, I just haven't. I've, I've been away and it was using up so much of my data roaming and stuff that I haven't actually got around to watching it yet, but I will. I'll probably watch it here when、we、I'm in Singapore. We should, we should catch it after、yeah. this. <laughs> For the listeners out there who are unfamiliar with what the Royal Variety performance is, now could you tell us a little bit more about it? It's probably very, very prestigious to be it, performing. It's prestigious and it goes way, way back from when it was probably Queen Victoria, if not before, used to have a show put on specially for her. I mean, it really is a variety show in the truest sense of the word with comedians and singers. And nowadays they have, I think, One Direction will probably on this one. It used to be that it famously went on a bit too long. <laughs> and I don't think、yeah. the Queen was too happy to be sitting there for three hours at a show like right. that. I read But, somewhere that this, they, they said that this was one of the better ones that、uh-huh. was actually had, had good pacing. So、right. I, I figured there was I know some sort pacing of... is the key word. <laughs> <laughs> So, the original Western production of Mary Poppins ran from December 2004 to January 2008. The Broadway version went on more than six years, and there's also been an Australian production of it and a US national tour. I understand now that there's a UK national tour that opened in October. Yeah, oh, it's the second time it's been done, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had, we had a, one national tour that did, it was a year to 18 months. It was four or five venues. It's interesting because when, whenever we mount the production, it's very expensive to build the set, very complicated set. And so the first British touring set is the set that went to Australia. It did about two years in Australia. 
It then went back as far as Vienna, which is where it's still currently playing in German, which meant that in order to do another UK tour... New set. It's a new set that's been built. So the, the, Viennese, the Viennese set, is when it's finished there, I think in January, that's going to Stuttgart and it's going to start a German tour. It's, it's interesting because every time we've done the show since it first opened in London, we've made a few little modifications to both the script and to the set. Right. We've now got a version that we think absolutely works and it's getting great reviews. This new production, I saw it in Leicester. It's now in Dublin, in Ireland, which it's never been to before. And I think Cameron said it's going to tour for about two years. And then there's a production plan for Rio de Janeiro, for Japan and Korea. So it's suddenly doing, as Cameron says, what he thought it would do ten years later. Right. Can you tell us what's different? I mean, I worked at the theater selling your merchandise. Yeah. Uh, so Thank you I've, for that. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it a lot, but now I'm curious to know, aside from the change of uh, Temper Temper, mm-hmm. which is now playing the game. Playing the game. What other new changes are there? Basically, what we're seeing is a touring set. So what you saw on Broadway was pretty much a replica of what was seen at the Prince Edward Theatre in London in 2004 which was a very, very solid set. You know, it was like a whole house on stage. It won with best, uh, best, yeah, best design, best design yeah. for the Tonys. But in order to make, make that a touring possibility, we had to think of a better way of making that house work. And I think Bob Crowley, the designer, came up with, in actual fact, a wittier way of doing the house, where it literally opens up like a pop-up book. So nice. as the doors of the house open, so the roof opens up, the whole house can be turned around and the back opens up to make the kitchen for Spoonful of Sugar. Oh, nice. And the Jolly Holiday number, the whole stage bursts into colour and light in a way that it didn't... It was going along the lines of bursting into colour and light, but suddenly it's much more vibrant. Awesome. So speaking of logistics and set, can you tell us, is it a huge logistical nightmare each time you move to a new theatre to, to rig the... Um, to have the flying apparatus. Yeah, the flying apparatus is because... Because not every theatre is equipped to do that. When we first opened in West End, we opened in Bristol and did a tryout out of town. And while we were still in Bristol, they were fitting up the flying mechanism at the Prince Edward Ready because that is always the thing that is hardest to get safe. I guess they've refined that over the years in that we can now leave one venue on a certain day and open by the Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. We fly Mary out at the end of Act 1. We fly her in, in the middle of Act 2. Bert does his walk around the proscenium arch, which also requires the flying apparatus. Mm -hmm. And she flies across the stage. We fly her across the stage, and then we fly her out into the audience. Right. And that varies from theatre to theatre, because in order for her to fly from the mid-stage point to the back of the upper circle, Mm -hmm. requires some way of getting her off in the upper circle, off her flying apparatus, and getting her back down to the stage to take her bow. Right. So in some instances, we've had to literally knock a hole through a wall to make an entrance for her to be able to get down to some side stairs. And the actual path that she takes varies from theatre to theatre as to where that balcony might be. Right, very interesting. So were there moments where she just couldn't make it on time and you had to do something? I don't think that's ever happened. There have been moments when it's gone wrong and and we have like an abort mechanism. If if she feels unsafe or if it's snagging in the wire, we just can't do that. So in actual fact, for the first preview ever, she didn't do that flight and we were all mortified because we were all looking forward to seeing the audience's reaction to this. And I've seen a production where Bert... Having done his proscenium arch, he walks up one side of the proscenium, he got to the middle, and then it stopped. And so they didn't lower the wires. And he had the sense to do a lot of these forward this... rolls between the two wires. It looked like it was meant to happen. I think I've seen that happen once during my um, oh, at, stint. At, 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 at the New um, Amsterdam. Yeah, the New mm-hmm. Amsterdam. Okay, I know you're not going to tell us how Practically Perfect is done in terms of how these huge plants mm-hmm. and things come out and clocks. and um, But 
just I'm just curious. Do you know how it's done? Oh, I absolutely know how that one's done. Okay. But the funny thing is, I was in rehearsals the other day for this new tour with Cameron Mackintosh. And the, if you remember, there's a moment when Bert the, the Chimney Sweep comes across the stage with what looks like a see-through hurdy-gurdy barrel organ mm-hmm. with Willoughby the dog on top of it talking. And you can see through this thing. It's glass. You can see right the way through it. You can just see the bellows going up and down. And Cameron leant across to me in rehearsal and said, do you know, I don't know how, still don't know how they make that dog work. And I said, well, there's someone in there. And he said, there's not. He said, there's not room for anyone in there. And then as we saw it pushed across to the side of the stage, we see this dancer who's sitting like an L shape climbing out <laughs> the back of it. And it, it is remarkable because you honestly don't think there's enough room in that box right. for anyone to get inside. It's, it's, but it's, you know, they're all done with magic and mirrors and tricks. Yeah, I, I've done a magic show and, and it's always... Uh, they use a lot of perspective and sort of yeah. like slants. And the funny hike. thing is, even when I know how it's done and I walk up and I can see the prop, when I'm sitting in the audience, I can't see how they right. can do it as effectively as they do it. Right. Which is kind of nice. It's still very magical. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about this early on. You mentioned a few countries. So on the international front, Mary Poppins has played to countries like Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Iceland, and even Mexico. Did you have any idea Mary Poppins was this popular or going to be this popular in other I, cultures? I think unlike all of our other shows, we knew that it had this worldwide appeal. I mean, the fact that it's been translated into other languages is always interesting because as the lyricist, the lyricist in the local country will contact me and say, I can't find a, a rhyme for this. And if I give you a literal translation of what I'm trying to say in a song, like say anything can happen if you let it. If I give you a literal translation, will you say yay or nay to it? Because technically, although I don't speak all these languages, I have the ability to say yes or no to it. Right, yes. This is um, very interesting to me. Yeah, well, is it, I mean, well, the, the thing as a writer, what you need to... A, you're flattered that they want to do it in another country. And B, you have to trust their sensibility as to why they've chosen the subject matter for a show that they're going to honour what you've done. And right. the best I can do is listen to the audience reaction. And I remember, for instance, once we were going to do a show in, it was Honk, and it was going to open in Israel, in Hebrew. And Cameron McIntosh, who's actually not involved with Honk, but he's a friend of mine, said to me, I know who should translate it for you, because they just did a brilliant job on My Fair Lady or something. And, you know, sure enough, when I went out and saw it in Hebrew, it was getting the right sort of reaction. And I've directed shows of mine in other languages. I've directed Honk in Japanese, and I've done it in South Africa, where we had, though it was in English, there was some Afrikaans references put into it. But it's very hard for the translator to be able to do the same sort of thing. For instance, in Denmark, our, our version of Peter Pan opened in Denmark. The Danes have 25% of the vocabulary that we have in the English language. So they automatically have less ways of saying the same thing. And if it's a sort of song where you're repeating an idea, but in different ways, they haven't got that ability. Right. Plus, you know, they, Tinkerbell, for instance, is called Klokkeblomst in, in Danish, which, you know, not that we ever rhyme that. But there's also, there's a song in, in Peter Pan, um, When Peter Flies, with the kids called Neverland. Mm-hmm. And my spin on it was, the way to fly is to never land. Ah. Well, they don't have land having double meaning in Denmark. Oh, right. As in right. a light, as well as a landmass. So, so you can't do that. that no, so, so, so they couldn't. They called it Dreamland. And it was just, you know, it was different. But I just, as a writer, I just say, okay, you know, if that works for your country. And the same applied with Mary Poppins all around the world because, you know, a word like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious doesn't really mean anything. It was a word invented by the Sherman brothers. And yet that film is known all around the globe. So that they sort of know that song all around the globe. When I rewrote Supercalifragilistic for this show, I use other osseous rhymes. 
and I can't remember whether it was the Dutch or the Germans, but one of them, the translator, contacted me and said, do you mind if we change supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Because the ocious bit in their country sounded like it was going to be a rude word. Oh no, what do you do it with literally... something so iconic like that? I know. How do you... How do you... So they... It was supercalifragilisticexpialidastis. Right. Whichever country it was, it ended in dastis rather than docious because it sounded like it was a rude word. Right. Interesting. Do you earn more royalties from merchandise or from your songs for Mary Poppins? From the songs. From the songs. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's complicated because, you know, as a writer, you get a cut of the box office. Mm-hmm. And your percentage of royalty tends to be grouped in with everybody, uh, all the other royalty holders. True. And what the producers try to do is, you know, put a cap on how much of a percentage of the box office is going to go to the royalty pool. So on a big show like Poppins, it's not just the Sherman Brothers and George and myself and Julian Fellows. It's the guy who wrote the screenplay or his estate. It's Disney themselves who whose film it was. It's Pamela Travers who wrote the books and her estate. But then you've also got the director and the choreographer and the designer and wow. probably the lighting designer are all going to be on a royalty as well. So, it, you know, it, it's a slice of the pie that you get. Right. But because it's been a successful show, it's a very nice slice of pie. So where else can we expect to see Mary Poppins in the future? There are rumours that um, it's going to come to countries like China, France, Japan, Spain and the Philippines. Is that all true? You know, it varies, on a, not on a daily basis, but every time I speak to Cameron about it and he says, oh, I've got some good news, boys. And for instance, the, the production that is currently in Vienna is going to go to Stuttgart and then tour Germany for as long as it can last in Germany, which is probably quite a long time, probably four or five years. There's talk of a Korean-Japanese production that will do those territories. There's talk of Rio de Janeiro doing it because it was very successful in Spanish in Mexico. And in Brazil, they speak Portuguese, don't they? So it'll yes. be another translation for that. Yeah, there's, there's been talk of a, a tour coming out of South Africa and doing Manila and Hong Kong and Singapore. Wow. Like they did with the Dirty Dancing right. and um, Jersey Boys that started in Cape Town or Joburg. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a few more productions. And it's also been released in America, so a lot of regional theatres are doing their own version of it. I've seen lots of footage of, of these productions, and they, they're not allowed to copy exactly what we did, because then it becomes the Disney Macintosh production. So, but, so they have to, they just take the script, they take the score, and they do their own design and the whole thing. Nice. So certain, you know, obviously there's some certain iconic moments with the chimney sweeps dancing on the rooftops and Mary with an umbrella on, and so on. But the actual physical production is different. It's even been done in the round which is really hard to fly because you can see from every angle, you can see how it's being done, especially the magic tricks you were talking about a minute ago. So just speaking of the umbrella, um, is there a favourite that you have of the merchandise so far? Do you know, I never really get that involved with it. I did buy some London double-decker buses, miniature, like Dinky Toy, because they had the old original logo on it. And I thought these are going to become a collector's item because we've changed the logo now. So I did buy those purely as an investment, not as a okay. not because I haven't got a bus fetish or anything. Um, <laughs> I've got the umbrella. I've got a special umbrella that you can't buy in the shops. That the one was... that she has in those photos. No, that they you, take. no, you can buy those. Okay, you can you can buy that one with the with the green parrot headed handle. No, there was a special one which is all brown wood with a, a little gold embossed thing to me on it from Disney and Cameron Macintosh. Oh wow. Which I don't use because I'm worried I'll leave it behind somewhere. Of course. I mean I would So all of the creative team are given one of those. How nice. Uh, so like myself, you seem to be drawn to projects with animal characters or even fairy tale elements in them. Together with George, 
You've written musicals like Just So, Honk, and Betty Blue Eyes. And for the Singapore Repertory Theatre, and uh, this was actually where I had the honor to meet and work with you, you've written Three Little Pigs, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and Three Billy Goats Gruff. Now, what about these type of stories draw you to them? Well, it's it's absolutely not intentional that that seems to be the way our career has gone. But the, the fact is, once you write one show that is perceived as being family-friendly, people will offer you other shows. The fact is, um, the very first show that we did that was perceived as being child-friendly was Just So, which is based on the Just So stories by Rudyard Kipling, which are not the most accessible stories for young children. Kipling wasn't that sort of a writer. He wrote what he wanted. Our show became a family-friendly show based on those, inspired by those stories. That was the first one we did, which is 1985. In 93, I wrote Honk. I wanted to use everything I'd learnt from a very long gestation period with Just So because it had, it had been done in Plymouth, it had been done in Newbury in England, it had been done in the Goodspeed Opera House. Steven Spielberg had optioned it for a feature animation. It had gone on a very, very long journey to the extent it was almost stopping me from writing anything else because I, there was always a reason to keep rewriting Just So. So in 1993, I decided to, to put those lessons into practice on another new story and I chose The Ugly Duckling. But I should tell you, I did my degree in zoology, so there's a reason why animals feature quite heavily in my shows. Um, so Honk the Ugly Duckling story became this huge show globally, which really put us on the map. So again, people started offering us other children-friendly shows. And the, the way Peter Pan came about, which was probably the next of the children-friendly shows, was because a producer had done a pantomime version of Peter Pan in which he had used a song called, uh, called Does Anyone Ever Really Grow Up At All? which comes from Just So. And he said, I've been using this song in my pantomime. I would like you to write a whole score. Well, and so the first thing I said was, we well, can't have that song because it belongs in another musical. So we wrote a song called There's Always Tomorrow. And then we wrote a whole score for Peter Pan. And then off the back of Honk beating the Lion King and winning the Olivier Award in 2000, that secured us getting the job on Mary Poppins, which is perceived as another family-friendly show. But it's not, it's not the only thing I write. It's just the things that, that seem to get done the most. Then I've written Betty Blue Eyes, which actually isn't based on a children's story. It's based on an Alan Bennett film called A Private Function. I've got two shows next year opening, which are much more adult stories. And in the case of this, the shows I've written for Singapore, because I've had a great relationship with, with Singapore Repertory Theatre since 1997, when I wrote A Twist of Fate with Dick Lee, and then Gaurav, asked me, Gaurav Kripalani, who runs the Singapore Repertory Theatre Company, asked if I would consider writing something for the little company. And he said, title recognition is a good thing, and the small cast is a good thing. So I said, what about something like The Three Little Pigs? And then I had the idea, from my point of view, wouldn't it be fun to try and do a trilogy of trios because it made it more of a conundrum for me to work out how the same five actors could do all three shows. So we did The Three Little Pigs, then we did Goldilocks and Three Bears, and then we did The Three Billy Goats Gruff. And ultimately, I'm hoping that they will play in rep somewhere. In fact, I'm in talks with somewhere in the UK at the moment where you can do all three shows in the same day on a set that can be modified to do all three stories and with the same five actors because each show is only 55 minutes long so it's not too demanding of an actor and it kind of makes it fun for children in the audience to get the idea of what a repertory theatre company is because you might see one actor one day playing the big bad wolf but the next day he might be playing father bear and the next day he might be playing you know goldilocks's father or something so it's kind of fun for the kids to see how actors work as well and that's taking off in that in itself is taking off very well it's mm. uh it's in london since it's yeah we had here. we had a run in london this summer I've just opened it in Sydney Opera House. 
Amazing. It then goes, I know, it was amazing. And then it then goes to Melbourne Arts Centre, then it goes to Hong Kong. It's been done in Finnish in Helsinki. It's been done as part of the National Alliance of Musical Theatre Festival in New York with a very starry Broadway cast. It's been done in various children's theatres across America now, California, and, and it's in China. We had a, a Chinese producer see it. It's about to open in Russia. Oh, wow. Um, there are seven productions of Three Little Pigs currently in China all the same producers so all, each production looks the same but he's just set up seven companies because China's such a huge country and he's touring for like two years right and they've just opened Billy Goat's Gruff because it's the year of the goat and they wanted to get it on in China while it was still the year of the goat excellent congratulations it sounds amazing it is it's, it's always surprising you know it's, it's the same with Hong Kong has had over 6,000 productions around the world and although I've probably only seen about 10 of them or something you know it's, it's unbelievable to think that that many people are doing it and to think pretty much every day of the week someone's doing honk somewhere in the world or is rehearsing it and sometimes they'll contact us through through Facebook and Twitter and things we will get messages can we write a good luck message to the cast it's just opening in New Zealand we're opening next week can you say hello my best friend is playing the ugly duckling and it's right. it's a wonderful network of, 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 of young performers who've been doing the show this is a, a huge question, but maybe briefly, can you chart us through your history of being a composer and also in reference to someone who's starting out who wants to be successful? What kind of decisions did you have to make? I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of it has to do with managing time, uh, priorities, and choosing the right projects. And But how first do you start that ball rolling? And then once it takes off, how do you manage what projects? Well, it's hard to have any hard and fast rule. I mean, the fact is, in 1980, I went to university, and in the first or second year, I met George Stiles, who was a music student. George was running the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. I started directing musicals my brother had written with a new society I formed with the students. And George and I teamed up in our final year because he was in the musical I was directing. And literally, the night after that closed, he and I went down to Plymouth, which is about 40 miles away from Exeter, where we're at university, and we saw a very small production of Sweeney Todd, and I'd never seen a Sondheim show before. And literally, in the car on the way back to Exeter after it, I said to George, do you fancy trying to write a musical? So from day one, I've had a partner, and I, whenever I talk to young writers, and so many people want to be Sondheims or want to be William Finns, and they think they can do everything, the fact is it's much better to be part of a collaboration because musical theatre is such a big collaboration. You might as well start learning it in the writing because you're going to have to learn it later on when directors and actors and choreographers and lighting designers and sound designers all become involved. But what George and I have found is that, A, I think we have a very similar sensibility. We like the same sort of subject matters. We, um, I think we've grown up at the same speed as, as writers because I think sometimes... I'm not saying they didn't, but with Andrew Weber and Tim Rice, Andrew is very driven as a composer, and Tim is as happy playing cricket as he is writing lyrics. So they weren't actually going at the same sort of tempo together. And when Andrew decided to write Cats, which didn't require any lyrics from Tim, Tim was quite happy to be off playing cricket. Right. Um, and so their, their their paths sort of drifted apart a little bit. George and I haven't done that. We've once from the minute we decided we were going to write musicals, we were passionate about that. That's what we were going to do. We were very lucky along the route, which you need. I mean, obviously you need to have some sort of ability, but you also need some lucky breaks. Our first lucky break came with our very first show, which was based on the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. 
and somebody from Warner Brothers Home Video happened to see it. And though they couldn't do anything for us, they said, I think you boys should come up to London and meet Johnny Sterling, who's our international managing director in the music publishing department of Warner Brothers. And so we came up, we met Johnny Sterling. He said, I don't know anything about musical theatre, but I like what you boys do, and I want to prevent you from becoming teachers, which is what we would otherwise have done. If, you know, Tutankhamun hadn't worked out, would have just done, I'd have been become a biology teacher, George would become a music teacher, that would have been the end of it. He said, I want to stop you from becoming teachers, so I'm going to give you enough money to live on for two years to see if you can make it. Wow. So we not only did we have money, we had an absolute deadline by which we had to prove that we could make a career at this. So we then, and the same week that he signed us, he signed Shaka Khan and Banana Rama. So, you know, it was nothing to do with musical theatre. Right. He did introduce us to one or two people, friends of his who were in the business. One was an agent, one looked after Andrew Webber, and one was Tim Rice. And they were very encouraging. And they said, stick with it. We wrote Just So. And we had only written a synopsis and three songs when we heard of a new competition that had been launched, a one-off competition back then, called the Vivian Ellis Prize. And as a birthday present to Vivian, they wanted to launch a competition in his name. The entry requirements were a synopsis and two songs. And we only had three songs at this point. So we just ditched the third song that we thought was the weakest of the three and entered. And we won. And it was judged by Cameron McIntosh, Angelo Weber, Tim Rice, Don Black, Mike Batt, Vivian himself, David Henniker. And suddenly, again, it was a lucky break. It was lucky that competition came along at that time. It was lucky that we'd chosen a subject matter that seemed to appeal to an audience. And it took off from there. But but from that moment on, although we've had you know we've had great mentors and supporters in particularly with Cameron Mackintosh, but also with my agent for years and years, Patricia McNaughton, who's now retired, we had we always had a carrot dangling and we always had deadlines to meet. And although you know you're right, time management is a big part of it, particularly now that we've become you know, sort of more successful and different people are offering us different shows with a different timeline. Like I'm doing a new show now with Jerry Mitchell, which won't open till 2017. I've got three new shows opening in the UK next year, which I didn't plan. All three would happen a month apart. That's just the way it's fallen. You know, one show we finished two years ago. There's a show we've written called Soap Dish, which has had two or three workshops with Christine Chenoweth and Jane Krakowski and Chris Sieber in, which still hasn't yet found the home where it's going to ultimately end up. I think we've now got a director for it and we've got a you know, projected timeline, but because of our other commitments, we can't probably do it next year. I think it's a case of sticking with it. You know, if you think you've, if you think you've got the, the ability and you've got the self-belief, and I think particularly if you've got a collaborative partner, you just stick with it. And, you know, if you can make a living at it, well, George and I are unbelievably lucky that we've never had to do anything other right. than write songs to make a living. Right. Do you need an agent for this? At what point in your career would an agent be useful or, or not at all? I got an agent um, about a year and a half after meeting Cameron because he literally just opened Phantom of the Opera and at the first night party he came up to us and he said this is going to be you in a couple of years time and he said and he was going to be moving abroad for a while and he said I want someone to look after you and Patricia McNaughton was a great friend of his so to have an agent is a, is like a comfort blanket, I would say. They don't ne- as a writer, they don't necessarily get you work because they're not necessarily positioned in a way that they can necessarily get you work. But what they can do is once you've got the job or you've written a show, they can make sure you get the best deal. And for the last question, you, I notice you, you contribute much of your time towards the Teenage Cancer Trust. Could you tell us a bit more about how this became your chosen charity and, and maybe shed some light on how we can help? Well, it's a wonderful charity. It's a British-based charity that was set up by a couple who I've actually met now. 
and its policy is to build a ward onto every hospital in the UK, specifically for teenagers, because in the UK, I think every day seven children get told they've got cancer of some sort, and it's catering for them. It's, it's creating an environment where they feel they're getting the best treatment. They're with people of their own age. They're not, you know, in a ward with eighty-year-old people, and there's no sense of um, death in the air. I actually went and visited one of these wards about two months ago, and it's I came. I woke up that morning thinking, oh, I've got to go to that cancer ward this afternoon. I went to it, and it was so uplifting, and the kids were so positive, and it was brilliantly presented. Um, that it's, I think it's a great charity. I got involved because I was invited to Downing Street at the end of the evening. I said, so what do you want to check? And they said, oh no, it's not just about writing checks for to pay for this thing. We want to raise awareness. We would like you to do a trek or something. And I said, well, I can do that. I'll do a trek. So I started raising the sponsorship, and I put on some concerts to raise the money. And I, the first one I did was in the Himalayas, which was very hard. And we got snowed in at four thousand meters above sea level for three days. And I was in a tent where it was minus seven degrees. And you'd wake up in the morning, and your breath is frozen all over the outside of your. Um, sleeping bag and you have to brush it off before it melts and you unzip the tent all you see is whiteness you can't see where the sky ends and the ground starts and then then the sun came out and then we finished the trek so that was my first one I did Machu Picchu then I did um, the Topista Calantis mountain range in Cuba then I did Myanmar last year and then this year I did the Sahara Desert which is also really really hard in fact maybe the hardest it was it was the most um, it was the trek where I felt I was in total. My life was in the hands of the person at the front, who was a wow. Moroccan, because I, I was in the middle of the desert. I didn't know where I was, and if anything went wrong for any reason, I wouldn't know which direction to walk in. Yeah. And it was just sand dunes. So there were, I think there were about twenty-four of us who set off, and we—I mean, we all ultimately finished it because even if you've been sick, they let you do walk the last mile. But I think only ten of us finished it without any encumbrance. So there was one guy who got um, sunstroke. There were people who got unbelievably bad blisters, which, because of the sand getting in their shoes, became very sore because they, you know, it was like roughage, uh, yeah. abrading them. And there was a, an older chap who got just exhausted and had to get either on the camel or in the jeep. And there were a lot of people who got diarrhea and sickness. And I was just very lucky that I got through it without any problem at all. <laughs> I felt a bit guilty, but it was really hard work because sand dunes are very very hard to climb up right can imagine because your, your feet just sink you feel like you're getting nowhere yeah. you're, you're constantly trying to climb up and then you slip down and just climb up and slip down so it was very hard it was very very hot it was like 40 degrees during oh, the wow. day and we were walking all day during the day we did 78 kilometres but at night it's 6 degrees so it was really cold in your tent so you need to you know you need to pack sensibly well, bless, bless you for doing this. I mean, and, I'm, I'm and, really glad I'm doing. I mean, it's a, it's a great cause, and I'm seeing that parts of the world I would never otherwise see. So it's, I'm hoping next year, and I'll let you know as soon as I set up another giving page. I'm hoping next year to do Nicaragua. That's where they're going. Okay. Um, so if I do it, I'll let you know. Thank you so much, Anthony, for coming on, and um, you know all the best for the future. And we hope to see you in in Singapore. Oh, really you soon undoubtedly will. I love coming back here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And if you'd like to follow Anthony on social media, he's on Twitter at Ants Drew, A-N-T-S-D-R-E-W-E. 
Songwriting duo George Styles and Anthony Drew also have a Twitter account together as well as a website. You can also follow the official Mary Poppins Twitter account. All these details in our podcast notes on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash onceuponafairytaletime. Be sure to like the page and share it with your friends. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, details can be found in the video description. And don't forget to hit subscribe. This is Disney Dwayne for Once Upon a Fairy Tale, the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Disney Dwayne for quick Disney news and updates on future episodes. Till the next one.